I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge of yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge, in turn, may hand you over to the officer, and the officer will throw you in prison, and I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Again, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it, I'll fertilise it, and if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not then cut it down. Well, what a weird and wonderful set of passages we have this morning. The question I'm sure that is on your lips, is on my lips as well, is what on earth is going on? We've got a parable about gardening. We've got half the story at best about a natural disaster and a religiously motivated atrocity. We've got some sage advice for those on the receiving end of some sticky legal situations. We've got some simple mnemonic devices that are helpful for us to predict the weather. We've got the promise of families ripped apart. And if that's not enough, we've got a passage this morning that begins with Jesus, the Prince of Peace, as he's elsewhere known, kicking it off by declaring, do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you but division. Like me this morning, I'm expecting you to be raising your hand gingerly and asking the question, what on earth is going on? And it is truly perplexing on the face of it. But I think actually if we spend a few moments stopping, pausing, considering the wider scope of scriptures and everything that Jesus has said about himself, I think we'll find this morning that actually it's a very simple passage to understand. You see, 
you and I are probably more familiar with Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And if you've been with us as we've been making our way through Luke's Gospel, that's the Jesus we've encountered almost every step of the way. In chapter 1, when the prophecies are being made about the birth of John the Baptist, he's described as the one who comes before making way for the Lord. And this is the description of the one he's making way for, that he's preparing the way for the Lord, the one who is to give knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins, whom, because of the tender mercy of God, um, is going to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. The one who will bring peace. That's the description of Jesus right there in chapter 1. Now how about in chapter 2? Chapter 2, when this proclamation is being made that Jesus at last has been born. That God is now dwelling amongst us in flesh. The heavenly hosts appear and what do they sing? Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favour rests. Or think about how Jesus introduces himself and his ministry. Chapter 4, do you remember that? When he first goes to the synagogue, unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and reads these words and says that they are fulfilled in him. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. It sounds a lot more like peace than it does division and war. What about how he has throughout Luke's gospel been sending away those people who have come to him and have experienced freedom and forgiveness? Chapter 7, the, the sinful woman at Simon the Pharisee's house. Your faith has saved you, he says. Go in peace. Chapter 8, hot on her heels. The woman who's been um, bleeding for 12 years. Daughter, he says, looking her in the eye. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. That is an awful lot of peace coming from and orbiting and surrounding someone who declares themselves, chapter 12, to be bringing division. What if we step outside Luke's gospel? I limit myself just to the things that Jesus um, articulates as his mission. In the gospel of Mark, doesn't he put it like this? I have come what? To serve, to give my life as a ransom for many. Or in John's gospel, I have come that they may have life and live it to the full. Or in Matthew's gospel, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Over and over and over again, this consistent message is a message of hope, of forgiveness, of reconciliation. Yes, of peace. As Paul, the apostle, and the other apostles would go on to understand it and articulate it, Jesus, he himself, is our peace. He came and he preached peace to, to you who were far away, says Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, and peace to those who were already quite near, for through him we have, all of us, access to the Father by one spirit. Peace, reconciliation, forgiveness, hope, light, life, restoration, adoption, all these wonderful, marvellous, positive 
drawing together, drawing up things that are consistently used to describe who Jesus is and what he is doing. So what have we missed then? What have we missed in all of that? Well, here's what I think we can sometimes miss. That for all of these positive statements about Jesus, from Jesus, they suppose in and of themselves already a desperately negative, dangerous situation for each and every one of us. Think about it like this. If Jesus is the light come into the world, then doesn't that suppose that we are dwelling in darkness? If he is to be the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist pointed, pointed to him and said, then doesn't that suppose that we all need atoning for? If he is to be the saviour, doesn't that mean that we all need rescuing, that we all need saving? If he's to be the one who reconciles us to the Father by that one spirit, well, doesn't that suppose, mustn't, doesn't that necessitate that we are separated from God at present? That we are cut off, that we are far away, that we are not children, but enemies of God? Isn't that exactly the point that Jesus is driving home in today's passage in verses 57 to 59? I'll read them again. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right, says Jesus? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way. Or your adversary may drag you off to the judge and then the judge turn you over to the officer and then the officer will throw you in prison. And I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is supposing that we are guilty in this story. It isn't just some sage wisdom for sticky situations we might unfortunately find ourselves in for, but it's a lesson, it's an illustration that we do all have something that needs settling. That if our lives at last were to, to reach that heavenly courtroom and if it was all laid bare and judged, we'd be considered guilty. And we'd have to make full payment ourselves. Jesus says, don't wait until that time. Come to some sort of settlement now. And truly the wonderful thing is that the one who offers us that harsh truth is the one who has come himself to pay the price. The one who has come to make the offer of the settlement. The one who has come to take on our debt and instead give to us his riches. We all have debt. We are all outside the kingdom of God as it were because of that debt and we will all have that debt called in unless something happens. Surely that's the point of the very next section, the next passage, this discussion of those who were slaughtered in the temple by Pilate or those tragically killed in Jerusalem when the tower collapsed. Twice Jesus emphasizes that those were not in and of themselves judgment upon any person's particular wicked behavior but twice also Jesus uses them as sobering reminders that life is short that mortality belongs to each and every one of us and that given we have this fragile nature that each of our lives at any moment are on a knife edge that now now, says Jesus, is the time to repent, the time to turn and to seek 
forgiveness, to find welcome in Jesus. Verses 54 to 56, the discussion about the weather, surely Jesus is saying that this is something that should not be delayed. Now is the time to turn and to trust in him. We're once again amongst the crowd who wanted just one more sign, one more miracle from Jesus before they were willing to make their commitment. They were really searching for any excuse to put off making that decision, but Jesus will have none of it. With tears in his eyes back then, and I sense it a little bit in this passage too, he warns and he pleads with us, repent now or likewise we will perish. That is not a threat. That is a revealing of reality to us. And it's a reality that is so right and just and owed and earned by each of us. The final section of today's passage, the parable about the fig tree. Isn't it right that the owner comes to it and sees that it is, it is a waste of space and wants to have it cut down? It is right that we are facing judgment from God because we've turned our backs on him. We've rejected him. We've turned away from our creator and in on of ourselves. The story of the entire Bible, the story of humanity is how after time after time after time, we get it wrong. The story of Jesus though, in the midst of all that darkness is that light comes, that forgiveness can be found, that the penalty, the price, the debt has been paid by him and that it is freely available, freely accessible to anyone who would turn from their sin, turn from themselves, turn from their own ways and run into his open and welcoming arms. The reason that this passage, I think, strikes us as being so odd is because we really know Jesus very well as that gentle, generous, loving, merciful and sacrificial by nature Christ. But here's the thing, we only know him in that way precisely because we need him to be that way towards us. We need him to be all of those things because we are in desperate need. You know, we put it like this in our common culture, don't we? Red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. And though it doesn't rhyme, it's just as important for us to know that if there is breath in our lungs, then now is the time to get right with God. Jesus is imploring you to find peace in him and through him. So what about then this opening discussion of division? Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the bringer of peace, who comes into a divided world, God versus humanity, humanity versus God, bringing peace, settling the score, making it so that we can have acceptance and forgiveness and life. What does he mean by bringing division? Well, here's the thing. Jesus was very open with those who were following him that just as they hated me and persecuted me, so they will hate you and persecute me. You see, when Jesus heals those battle lines between humanity and the Almighty, a new set of battle lines are drawn up, aren't they? 
between those in and amongst humanity who have come to see and to love and to cherish and to trust in Jesus and those who want to remain, who want to carry on in opposition. The reality is that when people find freedom, when people find forgiveness in Jesus, we can expect to find with them opposition with our fellow human beings, sometimes even within our own families. Woe to you, said Jesus, when all men speak well of you. There's something about becoming children of God, of having our eyes open to that truth, which for some people makes us a really unappealing prospect. When people encounter the grace of God, the light of Christ in our lives, there's often a very divided response. Some will see it and they will want to inquire more about it. They will be like moths drawn to the flame, drawn into it. And there are others who will hate it, who will react against it. And not only think less of you and me, but hate you and I. Just think about in our modern day, the, the different responses that people can have to raising children in a Christian faith to Sunday school. I think it was Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, who likened bringing children up in the Christian faith to child abuse. He said it was tantamount to child abuse. And yet there are others in our culture who not necessarily interested in having a personal faith themselves, want to take their children to Sunday school because they see it as a valuable thing. That's not new to us, that is how it has always been. In the book of Acts, immediately after Luke's story, his retelling of Jesus's life, death and resurrection, that, that is the experience of the early Christians. That some amongst the Jews in the synagogues heard the message, heard the hope, heard the good news of forgiveness and freedom in Jesus and they latched onto it with both hands and others, others did everything in their power to silence them, to tear them down, to destroy them, to oppose them. And it wasn't just amongst the Jews in the synagogue. When Paul went to the Areopagus and he boldly declared, hope in the resurrected saviour only, some people heard what he had to say and with joy gave themselves over to Jesus, read the signs of the present age, put their trust and their hope in him, repented and became followers of the way. Others were reasonably unmoved. They'd be happy, they said, to listen to Paul if he ever came back again and still others fiercely opposed him. We should expect church division. We should expect hostility. We should expect our Christian lives to be lived amongst stormy waters. But here's the good news, is that when we have trusted in Jesus and he leads us out into those stormy seas by his spirit, he is there with us. Our modern years probably latch on to this imagery in verse 49 of Jesus wanting to bring fire on the earth and how he wished it was already kindled. You, you couple that with 
the passages that follow, and it feels and it seems to us like Jesus is speaking about judgment. And without a doubt, Jesus has in mind judgment being a big theme here. But perhaps we miss out something when we jump straight to that conclusion. There's another time in Luke's gospel when baptism and fire have been spoken about, and it was John the Baptist speaking about how he was one who baptised with water, but there was one coming after him, Jesus, who would baptise with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And again, we fast forward in Luke's accounts to the book of Acts, to Acts chapter chapter uh, chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes and baptises this uh, new family of God, the church, all believers, and uh, tongues of fire rest on their heads. See, Jesus is looking forward to the time after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension, after his Holy Spirit has come and he has purified his people through the work of Jesus. He's applied that to his people. When this would just become evident to the extreme to those around and it would cause reactions. A division in responses like had been experienced up up until that point, but hadn't really played out in such a large way. I mean, actually, stop, think about it. There's already been this division in responses, hasn't there? When Jesus has been healing people, when he's been setting them free, when he's been drawing them into, bringing them into the kingdom of God, many people have seen that and responded by praising God, while others have called down curses on Jesus for doing it. Here's the thing that we need to know then, church. For those of us who have read the signs of the times, who have taken Jesus' advice, who have repented, who have turned and put their trust and their faith and their hope in Jesus for forgiveness and freedom and all of that, that life with him can be, will be dangerous. Because we live in a foreign land. We are subject to a king who has been outlawed in this place. Life with him, filled with his spirit, is dangerous. And yet at the same time, it is so, so safe. Wasn't that the encouragement earlier on in chapter 12? That the Holy Spirit who who will have us led before the synagogues to give account of ourselves is the same Holy Spirit who will give us the words to speak. That the same Son who we confess with our lips will command legions of angels on our account. That the Father who has the power not just to destroy the body, but beyond that, is the same who knows the hairs on our head. It is dangerous, but it is also in Christ so, so safe. But the opposite has to be said for those who wish to remain outside of Jesus. For those who aren't happy to settle the accounts before it comes to that final court. Who look and see the signs of the times. the, The red sky at night, the red sky at morning. But will not say now is the time for repentance. They feel like coming to Jesus. You feel like perhaps coming to Jesus is to risk all the earthly and worldly safety you have. That it will put you in danger of losing out, missing out on so much. 
you think life is safe now and that coming to Jesus is dangerous. Today's passage, Jesus is showing us the exact opposite is true. That to come to him now is to put ourselves at risk for a time, but to find safety, to find comfort, to find peace, to find joy, to find forgiveness, to find all these things which cannot be taken away. You know, the mercy of Christ is that though we, like that fig tree, really are due chopping down right now, he's given us time. And that time is today. Today to say, sorry, Lord, not myself, but you. Yes, Jesus, I want to be a part of what you are doing. I want to be a part of your people and your kingdom. And we can do that ever so simply by praying to him, praying to the Father in his name, Heavenly Father. You know every single thing about me. You know that we are people who have fallen short, people who have left undone the things that we should have done and have done the things that we know we shouldn't have that we have wrecked and we have ruined the image of God that is in us and we have trodden over the image of God that is in those around us. And yet, we can thank you today for your son, Jesus Christ, who was willing to die for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be set free, so that we could be found in your family. Jesus rose to life again so that we can rise to eternal life with him. So today we ask Jesus that you would be the Lord and Saviour in our lives. We pray that you would help us, no matter how dangerous it may seem, to live the rest of our lives, even in the face of division and opposition, to live the rest of our lives in your name. Because you and you alone are our Saviour. In Jesus' name. Amen.